Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and you're listening to But That's Another Story from Macmillan Podcasts. Before we start, the podcast may sound a little different today. That's because of two things. First, I'm coming off a bit of a sinus infection. And second, we're recording from my home today, not the studio, due to coronavirus. So, if it sounds a little less clear than usual, and my voice a little raspy, my apologies. Okay, back to the show. Today I'm going to start with a quote from Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. We pay a price for everything we get or take in this world, and although ambitions are well worth having, they are not to be cheaply won, but exact their dues of work and self-denial, anxiety, and discouragement. I recently talked about challenges, doubt, solace, and ambition with today's guest. I'm Rufy Thorpe, and I am a novelist and mother. We gave Rufy a call at her home in California. She published her first novel, The Girls from Corona Del Mar, in 2014. Her essay, Mother, Writer, Monster Made, explored the struggles of being both a mother and an artist. Her forthcoming novel, The Knockout Queen, is due out on April 28th. I grew up as the only child of a single mother, and um, I was born in Texas, but we moved to California when I was about six, and we lived in a duplex with my grandmother in the other unit. And so our family was like three women, an old one, a middle-lifed one, and a tiny young one. And mainly we played a lot of cards and judged each other. Um <laughs> Were she and your grandmother readers? Um, they are. I got really lucky, I think, in terms of like the parent bargain, because I had a mother who understood the kind of weird creature I was and who was willing to provide me with limitless access to books and, you know, t- conversation and very much included me kind of in the adult world. I mean, the way that my mom raised me was you're allowed to read anything. You want to read trash, read trash. You know, whatever you love, you're allowed to read. And she would recommend to me like highbrow books and utter garbage with equal abandon. Can you tell me what books you read as a kid and which were important to you? Anne of Green Gables, I think, was like hugely formative for me. I desperately wanted to be as naturally rebellious and alive and sort of authentically myself as Anne was, but it was much more difficult for me. So I was just more self-conscious and studied and sort of like painfully introverted. And so it was a kind of wish fulfillment, I think, um, for the Anne of Green Gables books. And that idea of the bosom friendship, I think I was really, really lonely as a kid and I really wanted close friendships. But I also got really into those Robert Cormier books. They're very disturbing and very weird, but like The Chocolate War and We All Fall Down and there were a couple other ones. And I read them at a time where I was like having this big conflict with my teacher because, <laughs> because for it was in like 
maybe fourth or fifth grade, but she was marking it at, like we had to do a book report every week, but she refused to accept my book reports because the books I was reading weren't at the right grade level or weren't like in their system. So I just started turning in like two and three book reports a week that were like not going to be, so I was failing, but reading, turning in more work than anybody else. And that was the kind of antagonistic relationship that I really continued to seek out for most of my life. You said you were a weird kid. Why were you weird? I was not reading correctly to anyone. Does that make any sense? Like, no one knew what to make of me. I was just this sort of, like, fat, loud, brash little girl that was, like, felt things very intensely and then would have, like, all sorts of inward dramas. And it wasn't, like... um something that made anyone want to mentor me, if that makes sense. And so in those books, I found the idea that there was this other world where the melodramatic way I felt about everything was mirrored in this other kind of melodramatic world. Rufi did what she thought she had to do to better fit in. I have struggled with my weight my whole life, and so I would go from fat to thin to fat to thin. And the way people treat you is really, really different. (laughs) And not just men, everybody. But I think as a woman, your beauty, you become aware of it as a commodity, as being very distinct from yourself, something that you're sort of tending and creating in order for the world to interact with, but that you know is not actually you. But she was about to face a new challenge that would permanently alter how she identified with being a woman. Oh, well, you know, I got married and had two children (laughs) and (laughs) kind of understood um, the invisibility apart as being a little bit harder to escape. I mean, my husband is a feminist who is interested in what I have to say and think and and it still is sometimes I feel like... um, the main thing anybody wants from me is for me to take care of them. I think that anytime that you're taking care of someone, you are in the position of strength and power because you're the one giving the care. And the other person, because they are in need of care and can't do that for themselves, is um, just more aware of the care than of you, I guess. Um, like, I guess you experience the hot meal, but you don't really think about the hours of chopping or whatever, however it got made. Some of it's that, some of it's the way that the house seems to magically clean itself. Some of it's like the sheer domestic nature of some of women's tasks. And with children, I mean, they literally can't imagine you as a separate person for a long time and they're not supposed to, they can't prioritize you. That would be, that would be nuts. As Rufi navigated being a new mother, she stumbled across an author in a book that spoke to her as no other book had. I am a big Jane Smiley fan, and um, but I didn't start reading her until maybe like six years ago. Um, and then I just was slowly sort of making my way through her books because there's a lot. Um, And so I just like got to private life, but it was a time where I was listening to a lot of books on tape because I had little kids and I had a lot of boring laundry to fold. Can you describe for readers or listeners rather who don't know uh, 
Private Life, roughly what it's about? Private Life is about this woman, Margaret, who has kind of a, um, she's growing up in Missouri, I think, and her life is sort of um, marked by the violence of male characters around her, and she responds to it by being very inward. And the tipping point in the book is the the death of that first baby where um, she, they, it's their first child and it's a boy. And then he has some kind of liver dysfunction. So he has jaundice and she's in this hotel room with this baby nonstop, just nursing the baby and trying to make it live. But she kind of goes nuts. One passage would be especially meaningful for Rufy, whose own baby had just recovered from a life-threatening illness. She sat down and readied herself to nurse. But in that short moment, the moment between her sitting down and her putting him to the breast, he lost even that ability. Margaret felt it. It was a feeling of something dissolving. She looked at his face. She saw that he had but one thing left, which is that he could look back at her. She stroked the top of his head, moving the thin hairs this way and that, feeling the smoothness of his golden skin. She held him closer as gently as she could, and then in the way that you can feel with your baby but not see or sense with anyone else larger or more distantly related, she felt the life force go out of him entirely. Jane Smiley's words voice Rufy's innermost thoughts and fears. When we come back from the break, Rufy finds solace in private life as she reflects on the experience of fearing that her baby might not survive. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Soon after giving birth to her first child, Rufy got some alarming news about the baby. I had just had um, the sort of scare with my baby, um, had had RSV and we were in the hospital. And RSV, um, which is sort of like a cold with very thick mucus. And so what happens is that littler babies can't cough hard enough. And so it is, and it's also a weird one because you can't really um, uh, immunize against it. And the the few times that they tried to develop immunizations, a bunch of the kids um, died in the trials because the weird thing about RSV is that once you get it, you're you get it worse the next time. So instead of giving you immunity through exposure, it actually makes it worse. And so, like one of the big rules was that we had to somehow keep the baby from getting it again, or else he was going to be in real danger. 
She spent five long and exhausting days in the hospital by her baby's side. I mean, in part, you're not sleeping. And ever since I was in my 30s, if I don't sleep, I get kind of nuts. And I was very sick. I had it too. And they can't feed you or anything. And there's these metal cribs that have the drop side. And so the moment that you get the sleeping baby to lay in them, you have to pull up this huge metal panel and then it clangs and the baby wakes up. So you kind of just can never go pee and you can never eat and you can't leave. There's no one to take care of your baby when you're not in there and your baby is really sick. And so, and then they come and wake you up every two hours to do these breathing treatments. Most of the time spent in the hospital is a haze but she remembers one interaction vividly. And I had a roommate, and so then there was also her and her sick baby, and I remember they came in and were being told that they were being discharged. And then there was this big curtain, but I could hear her crying, and I said, are you okay? You know, isn't everything, I think it's good, you're getting to go home, right? And she said, I'm crying for you. And I said, what? (laughs) And she said, because your baby's not getting better. And all of a sudden, I was like, my baby's not getting better. We've been here for a couple days, and my baby's just as sick, and it doesn't seem like any of this medicine is working. And what if my baby's dying? Would anyone tell me? Would anyone say your baby's dying if my baby was dying? No, they would keep not telling me. And so I kept trying to get nurses or doctors to talk to me, but it just felt like no one would level with me and tell me what was going on. So we were we got transferred to intensive care that night, which again confirmed all my worst fears, sort of that this was, uh, you know, that my baby was dying, and um, it wound up being fine, and my baby did not die, and we it was only you know five days, four nights in the hospital. It wasn't even a long stay, but it was still the worst thing that had ever happened to me. On the surface, everything thereafter seemed fine, but invisible to everyone was the loneliness and confusion Rufy still felt. I needed to figure out what had just happened because it was like definitely very traumatic for me and very horrible. And I guess I just wanted somebody to sympathize with me. It was at this moment that Rufy came across the passage about Margaret's baby in Jane Smiley's private life. And so when I read the description that was so apt um, in private life, I was um, just... It felt like I wasn't crazy. The way that I had experienced it, the depth of the experience was reflected in those passages in a way that made me think like, no, that was the experience and it's a core human experience and it was okay for you to feel it that deeply. It wasn't a sign of uh, being melodramatic or oversensitive. Like that's what it's like to love a baby and to be that close to it as it's struggling to live. The way Rufy connected with private life informed her own writing. I'd been writing all the year that I was pregnant. And so when the baby was like three or four months, I had what I thought was a finished draft. And I thought, well, I ought to just try and like shoot for the top, like figure out who my dream agent would be. And then they can say no, and I can work my way down the list, kind of. Deep in the trenches of taking care of a newborn, Rufy reached out to her top pick, a highly respected and successful literary agent. I wrote an absolutely unhinged, inappropriately intimate email, um, wherein I basically said, like, I have no idea how I could get you to want to read this book, 
I can't even imagine what your day is like. I just found out that I had baby poop on my head, uh, like a smear of it, like all morning. And I only just realized and wiped it off. Like, what could I possibly have to say to you? Like, I feel like I'm a million worlds away. And it's not something I would recommend that a writer do. I don't think it's like a professional way of going about getting an agent. But she wrote me back almost immediately and said, all right, I'm in a good mood because it's a Friday and I have sympathy with you because of the baby stuff. Send it to me. I'll read it once. Don't waste my time. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So I sent it to her. Rufi sent over the rough version of what would become her first novel, The Girls from Corona Del Mar. Then she... um, came back with a bunch of edits and she was sort of like, I don't know. These are substantial edits. I don't know if you can do it. But I had that great feeling of, you know, sometimes someone gives you edits and it's like you already knew it. It's like all of a sudden you can see exactly what they're saying and how true it is and exactly how you would fix it. And so I knew that I was going to be able to do it. And um, I took the next four months and rewrote it. And then um, I sent it to her and she said she wanted to talk on the phone. And so she called and she was saying all these nice things about the book. But I still thought that she was just letting me down easy. And I said, well, thank you. Thank you so much, you know, for your time. And she was like, I'm offering to represent you. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I just didn't didn't get it. And um, then she sold the book, and I got really lucky. Do uh, readers write to you? The most letters that I've ever received from something that I've written was an essay, a long essay that I wrote about Um, motherhood called Mother Monster Writer Made, I think. Um, And it was about feeling suffocated by my husband and children and feeling invisible um, and trying to kind of understand to what extent um, being a mother is incompatible with being an artist. There had been sort of like a number of articles coming out making various arguments about how possible or impossible it was. And... um, I think that that piece made a a lot of women wrote to me just crying and, and saying like this it said everything that I've been so worried about and hearing you say it was so comforting. Sometimes even just hearing somebody else articulate the problem is halfway, you're halfway home. Was um, Jane Smiley at all in your head when you were writing this uh piece that was so influential and and oh yeah and I quote her extensively in it because you know I started to understand that some experiences of motherhood were difficult to communicate and that people who had not had them were not gonna really get it I don't mean to be like leaving anybody out or or anything like that Kind of in the same way that if you'd like never had sex, it would be hard to understand what was really in it for everybody. Um, There's something about having young children that is really rewarding and really um, profound and um, emotional in a way that I just didn't understand before I had children. 
the the whole experience of pregnancy and nursing are very specifically bodily. And I think that my husband had his own profound different experience of being a father to babies. And I had a different one as being their mother. And some parts of my experience, he just didn't get. And that that was fine. I think that reading Private Life made me feel like that was fine and normal. And it would be weird if everybody was expected to kind of get every part of everybody else. And that there were these other women that had had this experience that I could kind of talk to. She takes from private life lessons on loving deeply and trusting that the truest part of our identities may be tested, but can never be lost. I was in such a psychological knot because I didn't understand and couldn't comprehend that it was all going to get easier and that that almost suffocating intimacy of when babies are really little, um, where you kind of can't have your own self, that that would end and that they would go to school and huge chunks of who I was before I had children would just come right back. And that I would feel like I had that headspace again. Um, and I was just not able to imagine that that would be the case. I felt like I was lost in this sort of desert of mommyhood. And so I think that if I could tell myself anything before I read that book, it would be like, no, everything that you're feeling is real and it is valid and it's not forever. And it's, it's normal and it's, it's part of the whole pains and that it gives you a tremendous amount of power. But That's Another Story is produced by Christy Westgard. Thanks to Rufy Thorpe and Molly Friedrich. Rufy Thorpe's new novel, The Knockout Queen, comes out in April. If you'd like to learn more about the books we've mentioned in this week's episode, you can find out more in our show notes. You can also find a transcript of this episode and past ones on LitHub. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and stay well. Just waiting for a car. <laughs> <laughs>